Join me in prayer, will you? Let us pray. Lord, we have just read and heard the reading of your word, and we now ask, O oh Lord, that you'll enable your servant to explain your word as we study it together, that the purposes for which you are sending forth your word will achieve your intentions, that it will not return back to you empty. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this week, um, there was a day that my family forgot to celebrate. It is Coco's Gacha Day. Coco, our poodle, our poodle's uh, third Gacha Day. Now if you've never had a dog, uh, Gacha Day is actually the day commemorated each year uh, to celebrate the day the pup arrived to stay with us. So you see, I had to learn a few dog vocabulary words like porens, polyclinic, and gotcha day. What happens on a gotcha day? Well, personally for me, I replay in my mind the day my daughter and I drove to Changi to uh, fetch Coco. So the dog flew in via Cantus on a morning flight, baggage class, and he arrived late afternoon. And when I collected him, still inside his transport cage, Coco immediately licked my finger, licked my hands. Does that mean that we have the, the vibes? Does that ensure that he is going to settle in well in our home? Well, not exactly, because I had to read the care manual that his breeders sent to us. And I had to read it many times. So I had to read this manual, and the manual tells us that we had to follow his diet strictly. Rice, shredded chicken, and cheese. See, he's Aussie. That's why cheese. His first night with us, he had to sleep inside a newly bought crate with a warm bottled water to keep him comfortable. And the crate must not be too big, or else he will dirty inside. And Coco uh, came with a vaccination booklet, you know, just like our baby vaccination booklet, uh, to remind us when his next jab is. And the instruction was, until, until he has completed all his vaccinations, he is not supposed to step out of home. And so the instructions in the booklet were important reading for us. Follow them, and it will ensure survival of the pup. Ignore them, and we may have a dead dog for our first dog. Now, when the Lord gave commands, or rather gave Israel commandments, the commandments were a matter of life and death. It was a matter of blessing and curse. Obey, and they will live long in the land. Ignore the, la ignore the commands, and they will perish. Now, we know that the people disobeyed, but because of God's mercy, they did not perish as a nation. In God's mercy, they came back batch by batch from exile to Jerusalem. And last week, we read that under Nehemiah's leadership, the returnees finally completed rebuilding the wall. And so the question now is, will they resettle in well in their rebuilt city? Well, it will depend on how they respond 
to God's commandments, how they respond to the book of Moses, which is the focus of this chapter today. So if you look at your Bibles, chapter 8, we are told that all the people assembled in the square, and the man by, a man by the name of Ezra walks into the scene. And what do we know about Ezra? Well, from the book of Ezra, we know that Ezra is a priest, he is a scribe, he is a teacher sent by King Artaxerxes back to Jerusalem. We know that Ezra was a man devoted to the study of the law of the Lord, to do it and to teach it in Israel. So Ezra makes an appearance here in the book of Nehemiah, in the book of Governor Nehemiah, you know. I liken it to a superhero crossover, you know, in another Marvel uh, movie. So that's what Ezra does. And he comes to do what he does best, to teach God laws, God's laws to the people. And so we read that a wooden platform has, has been set up for him and for his 13 companions, that is his 13 co-teachers. When Ezra opened the scroll, everybody stood up, which is what we just did a while ago. Everybody stood up. When Ezra blessed the Lord, everybody said their amens, lifted up their hands, bowed their heads, and worshiped the Lord, their faces to the ground. Everybody here pertained to men, women, including children who were able to understand. And so you read this and you could almost sense the solemnity of the occasion. Furthermore, the people showed reverence for God in their posture. In their posture, what did they do? Because God was about to speak to them through his word, the book of Moses, and speak to them through the voice of the scripture readers in the person of Ezra and the 13 other teachers. And so let me pause and give you one instruction for us today. And this instruction comes in a prescriptive form, prescriptive form. The instruction is to publicly read scriptures. This prescriptive instruction to, read, to publicly read scriptures is not to be missed. We must read the Bible publicly. So it was Paul who tells Timothy, slide comes up, he says, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Now, yes, Paul's instruction was given at a time when there was a shortage of manuscripts. It was given at a time uh, centuries before Gutenberg invented the printing press. It was a time when few people were literate. But today, our abundance of Bibles in both printed and electronic form does not translate to increase in Bible literacy. We need to read the Bible publicly. Now, secondly, let me point out too uh, that the scriptures are actually meant to be read aloud. Did you know that? The scriptures are meant to be read aloud because the scriptures were handed down orally and they were written down and transmitted orally. And so even when one has had a copy, it was not read silently. 
It was read, spoken. And so one case in point, you probably know this, is the Ethiopian eunuch who, uh, uh, whom Philip heard reading from the scroll of Isaiah. See, the eunuch was in his chariot and he was reading out loud the scriptures of Isaiah. That was why Philip heard him and therefore grabbed the opportunity to explain it to him. Scripture was meant to be read out loud. So when the letters of Paul arrived to the different house churches, somebody, and it's usually the courier, the courier or the, what they call the amanuensis, the courier would read Paul's letter out loud to be heard by the people. So the act of reading out loud brought about an incarnational effect. The reader embodied the author. It was as if Paul were present with them to personally exhort them. Now that is why one communication expert by the name of Walter Ong, he believes and he says this, he says that hearing a text was thought of as an encounter with the author in the present time and in the present space. Whereas in contrast, print connoted an absent, distant, and abstract author. Very profound. So when God's word are read out loud, it is as if God speaks, and he does so through his word. So hence, we all need to adopt the discipline of reading scripture orally, not just silently, but reading orally. And in the church and in our Bible studies, in our DG settings, we need to prepare to read well. So as you can see, our musicians practice very well to lead us songs. Uh, our different announcers record a few times so that they can come up with a very clear announcement uh, and make it captivating. But when we read scriptures, shouldn't we prepare even better and avoid embarrassing mistakes? Example, it's not Revelations 21. It's Revelation without an S, 21. It's not Psalms 22. It's Psalm without an S, 22. And then when you read Psalm 22, verse 1, it's not my God, my God. It's my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? We must read out God's word well because of our reverence for the divine author. And lastly, do not complain if the passage is long or if there are so many strange names in that passage. You know, I've been to a church service uh, where the worship leader says, today's scripture reading is quite long, so please bear with me. When I heard that, I was stunned. I nearly fell off my chair. I mean, apologize for the long announcements. Yes, go ahead. But never apologize that God's passage is very long. The people 
In Nehemiah and Ezra's time, they showed regard for God by standing to hear His word. And they listened for hours. You read that, right? They listened for hours from morning to midday, verse 3. And so the descriptive instruction here for us is the regard for God through hearing of His words spoken. May the Lord cause us to revere Him through the discipline of reading His word out loud and through the devoted, attentive hearing of His word. And so the people understood what they heard because the Levites, we were told, Levites and others, they, they went around to read, to translate, and to explain to the people. And so how did the people respond? We read that they mourned. We read that they wept. They grieved. Because without a doubt, God spoke to their hearts through the proclaimed word. And what spoke to them? We can infer from chapter 5 that before they heard the book of Moses read, chapter 5 tells us that they were enslaving their poor fellow. Chapter 5 tells us that they were loan sharking, exacting usury. Now they must have heard portions and explanations from maybe Leviticus read out to them. So slide comes up. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 35 and following says, If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Next slide. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired servant and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. So these passages in Leviticus, these passages point out God's rescue of the people from slavery in Egypt. And God's command for them are not to enslave the poor among them. So the commandments prohibit them from charging interests from the needy. And then when we jump back, or rather when we jump forward to chapter 10, we will uh, infer that the people would realize too their sin of intermarriage, their sin of conducting business on the Sabbath, their sin of, or rather their failure to cancel debts on the seventh year, and their neglect of the house of God. That means their failure to give the required contributions of one-third of a shekel, the first fruits of the crops, the firstborn of sons, of cattle, of herds, and flocks. More about that from the next preacher when he discusses chapter 9, 10, and 11. So the people heard the law. Well, possibly for the very first time in a long time. And the law pointed out sin. It pointed out the reason too how they as a nation had been exiled and then dominated by foreign rule. And so having heard God's word, 
they now respond in guilt and grief. They wept. They mourned. Now, a year ago, I watched the documentary called, entitled, Meet Me on the Bridge. I don't know if you've heard of it. it reported the story of uh, Katie Poller. Katie Poller and her Chinese biological parents. Katie was left in the market when she was three days old in China because her parents cannot pay fines in violation of China's one-child policy at that time. And there was a note left with the baby saying, if heavens permit, let us meet again in 10, 20 years on the broken bridge in Hangzhou on the morning of the Qixi festival. So when the news picked up the story of the mother who went to the bridge every year in the hopes of meeting her daughter, when the news picked up the story, uh, they interviewed the mother and they aired it and it was seen by Katie and her adoptive family in Michigan. And their adoptive family arranged for her to fly all the way to China to meet her biological parents. So on that emotional day of mother, <clears throat> of mother meeting daughter, Katie's mother wept and wept and wept and wailed and hugged Katie tightly. She said, translated to English, Mom is so sorry I've finally seen you. Mom could not find you all these years. I could not take care of you. She wept, she wailed, and she cannot be consoled. Why? Because the mother was stricken with guilt and grief. The guilt of abandoning Katie as a baby in the market and the grief of not being able to take care of her during her growing years. But the weeping and the wailing had to stop. Why? Because it was supposedly a day of rejoicing, a day of celebration, because mother and daughter were finally reunited. So when the people in Jerusalem mourned and wept, Ezra, Nehemiah, and the Levites, they hushed them. And what was the reason? Verse 9. Verse 9 tells us, he explains, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. So specifically, what day were the leaders referring to that is a holy day? <clears throat> now, if we take note of the date that the people gathered, uh, if you look at chapter 7, the last verse, verse 73, it tells us that they gathered at the start of the seventh month. Now, Leviticus gives us some info on what happens exactly on the seventh month in the Jewish calendar. Slide. Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. And so it is a day of assembly for God's people. Nehemiah chapter 8, however, <clears throat> does not give us details on the blowing of trumpets or details on the food offering. The emphasis here seems to be on the public reading of the law of Moses 
and the response of the people. That now that they have completed the walls signifying the uh, rebuilding of the nation, the reading of God's laws supersede other activities. Their return and their resettling to Jerusalem uh, can be likened to a second exodus, where the Lord with his outstretched arm brings them back, brings out their people, his people from a foreign land to bring them to the promised land. And what happened immediately after God rescued their forefathers from Egypt, if you recall, we just studied Exodus not too long ago, what happened immediately after he rescued the forefathers from Egypt, he gave them his laws from Mount Sinai. And so here is what seems to be a repeat rescue and a repeat reading of the law or a repeat giving of the law. And so it is designated a holy day of assembly, not to be rained on by mourning and wailing, but to be celebrated with lots of eating and lots of drinking. Nehemiah gives another reason why this day should not be filled with grief. Nehemiah consoled them, saying this, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. This second reason for avoiding mourning uh, seems to be highlighted if you look at your Bibles because this reason is somehow sandwiched between the commands uh, eat, drink, it's a holy day, observe it, and don't mourn. It's surrounded by ex exhortations, don't mourn, eat, drink, and the reason that it is a holy day it is, is the rationale why the people should not drown in guilt and grief. Nehemiah is telling them, consider the joy of the Lord and how that joy of the Lord serves to be your strength. Now, friends, it's not just sinking one's mood with the vibes of the assembly. There's actually more to it. It is to look at the Lord's joy. It is to ponder on God's good pleasure and to realize that it was the Lord's joy that the people are here today celebrating. It was the Lord's joy that uh, moved the heart of King Artaxerxes to grant Nehemiah what seemed to be a blank check. You know, he provided him everything. It was the Lord's joy to grant Nehemiah to take a long leave, go to Jerusalem, given vast resources, timber, treasury, governing authority, and a governor's allowance in order to rebuild the city. It was the Lord's good pleasure to use a God-fearing man, Nehemiah, one with integrity, one who would not use his power to extort and abuse for the good of God's people, it was the Lord's joy to gather his people back to Jerusalem from their exile. It was the Lord's delight to fulfill his promise to restore the fortunes of the people and use his outstretched arm to gather them from where they had been scattered. It was the Lord's joy to grant them ability to build the walls while at the same time 
shielding them from all opposition. It was the Lord's joy that after 52 days, his people finished building the wall. It was the Lord's joy that their enemies who tried to frighten them were now the ones chickening out, were now the ones frightened. They lost confidence because they saw how God helped his people complete the project. The joy of the Lord is indeed the people's strength, meaning it is their refuge, it is their stronghold, it is their protection. And so it is ours. Whenever God's word points out sin in our lives, we respond in guilt and grief, don't we? Rightly. But guilt and grief is not the end purpose of his word. God's laws, they reveal sin. That's the intention. The Apostle Paul says, I would not have known coveting had the law not said you shall not covet. The law's aim is to show our sinfulness. Not so that we can drown in guilt, in shame, and in self-condemnation. No. But so that we might run to God for mercy, for forgiveness, and for reconciliation. So Romans chapter 5, verses 8 to 9 tells us, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Isn't that sufficient proof that the joy of the Lord is our strength? We are, after all, by default, objects of God's wrath because of our sin. But in God's great love, he gave us his son to die on our behalf and make peace and reconcile us with the Father, reconcile us to himself. Through Christ Jesus, God protected us from his wrath. Through Christ Jesus, he now makes friends with us. God's love, his joy is indeed our strength, our refuge, our protection. So I love reading the parable of the prodigal son. Parable of the prodigal son paints, paints this beautifully for us. The father, we are told, was always looking out for the return of his no good, womanizing prodigal son. The father was always looking out. Why? So that the moment he catches a glimpse of the son coming back, the moment he catches a glimpse, he could run and embrace him. Embrace him in order to protect him from villagers who probably would have stoned him and killed him because the law required that those who dishonor their parents must be put to death. The joy of the father is the wayward son's strength, protection. So are you stricken with guilt? Are you overcome with grief 
because of something that you have done in the past? Will you let the joy of the Lord be your strength? He gave you his son, and this son took care of the sins of those who believe him. This son now sits on the right hand of God the Father where he serves as our mediator. This son is looked at by God. God looks at his son in whom he is pleased, whom he loves, and he looks at us through his son, and he looks at us with delight. Because the joy of the Lord is the strength of the people, Nehemiah calls on them to rejoice instead. And the rejoicing carries over when they continue to study God's word, even on the second day. On the second day, this is probably what they discovered. Slide. <clears throat> Leviticus chapter 23, 39. On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And that's what the people did after they read God's requirement for them to celebrate what we know as the Feast of Booths. All the people went out, they gathered building materials from trees, and they made booths and dwelled in them. And what was the reason behind this, what I call tentcation? Their tentcation is that so that people may know that God brought Israel out of Egypt and made the people dwell in tents while they were journeying on their way to the promised land. And so un undoubtedly, tent dwelling taught them that the Lord provided also for them, journeyed with them, and preserved them as he has done so with their forefathers. See, the forefathers were brought out of Egypt. The, these people were brought back from captivity. And friends, do not miss the, the, the important comment in verse uh, 17. The people had not done so since the time of Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, this was an intended hyperbolical comparison which the NIV version translates for us. Slide comes up. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. And their joy was great. Now, you know that Joshua was the one who settled the people in the promised land. But because of sin and rebellion, the people were taken captives. They were, in a sense, 
non-existent as a nation, but not in, God, in God's good plan. It was the Lord's joy to bring them back. And this resettlement caused for, calls for far greater rejoicing. Why? Because they were dead, but now brought back to life again as a nation. They were banished and left, left for lost in a faraway strange land. But God gathered them back, and God gathered them back to return to Jerusalem. Hence, this celebration is unprecedented. I suppose, next slide, this is the overarching theme of chapter 8. It focuses on the joyous celebrations accompanying the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Booths. I do not know why there was no mention of the Day of Atonement, not in chapter 8. Perhaps the writer intended to focus on the rejoicing that is characteristic of what, what's going on around them. This rejoicing can only be the product of the hearing and obeying of God's word. The word that was read publicly by priests. Why? Because they knew reading of God's word, they rejoice knowing that it was the joy of the Lord that saw them through and brought them back. Perhaps they must have read this passage. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers.